when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. A tragedy in the English Channel this week saw 27 asylum seekers heading to Britain drown, leading to probing questions about how the situation can be resolved. As we mourn those who have died in the most horrendous of circumstances, I hope that the whole house can come together to send a clear message that crossing the channel in this lethal way, in a small boat, is not the way to come to our country. It is, of course, unnecessary, illegal, and desperately unsafe. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at the small boats crisis that you heard the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, discuss at the top. What, if anything, can be done to reduce the number of small boats crossing the Channel? And what does it say about the state of Anglo-French relations? Political and diplomatic correspondent Laura Hughes will discuss, along with Paris reporter Anna Gross. And later, we'll be looking at yet another chaotic week for Boris Johnson and whether the Prime Minister is, to use the words of one journalist, OK. Would a better Downing Street operation improve matters, or is Boris always going to be simply Boris? Chief political commentator Robert Shrimsey will analyse with special guest Paul Goodman, editor of the Conservative Home website and a former Tory MP. Well, with much to get stuck into, we're going to go straight into the main topic of the week. 2021 has seen a threefold increase in the number of small boats of asylum seekers trying to cross the English Channel from France, 27,000 people so far. Politicians and refugee campaigners have warned that a tragedy could happen at any time, and sadly, it has. On Thursday, what was described as a very flimsy dinghy capsized, and 17 men, 7 women and 3 children were drowned. Just two people survived in one of the worst tragedies in the channel since the small boat crisis began. Boris Johnson said he was shocked and appalled by what had happened. My thoughts and sympathies are, first of all, with the the victims and and their families. And uh, it's an appalling thing that that they have suffered. But I also want to say that this disaster underscores how dangerous it is to cross the channel in this way. Laura Hughes, how much of a crisis is this perceived in London? The Pretty Patel has been talking about this for a long time and the situation's been getting gradually worse for months now. But this incident has completely captured everyone's attention at a very high political level saying, look, we can't let this thing go on. It needs to be resolved. But can it? You're right. It has grown in terms of pressure on the government to deal with this crisis. And interestingly enough, we started at the beginning of the week with briefings to the Sunday Telegraph, warnings from Tory donors that if the Conservative Party don't get a handle on this, the issue is going to cost the government votes at the next election. There are huge concerns amongst backbench Tory MPs that their constituents see these boats coming over and they don't want them coming over. They feel as though the Home Secretary has failed to get a grip of the issue. 
obviously later in the week, the story has changed slightly because, of course, we've had these tragic deaths. I think that's brought home the, the real human side of this story. But unfortunately, if you just look on social media, the response from a number of people has overwhelmingly been unsympathetic and cruel, depending on your perspective. But the, the, the truth is, this is obviously an incredibly serious situation politically for the government because of the optics surrounding it, the inability of the British government to get a handle on it because of our relationship with the French and because this is such a complex issue, as I'm sure we will get on to, but also because people are dying and this is happening on our own border. Anna Gose, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's been seen as a crisis in London, but what's the view from where you are? I think you're currently speaking to us from Calais, where you've been reporting on how the tragedy has looked from the French perspective. Absolutely, the French see it as a catastrophe. Uh, and I do get the sense that it's shaken them into at least attempting to reach some sort of international agreement about what to do next. And clearly, this is really deeply embarrassing for governments on both sides of the channel. And, and no one is keen to take responsibility. As soon as news emerged of the boat disaster yesterday, France's interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, flew over to Calais to the main hospital here. But before he arrived, the mayor of the town, Natasha Bouchard, spoke. And, and she was unequivocal that responsibility for the disaster laid at the UK's feet and gave some quite pointed remarks about Boris Johnson and, and his culpability. When Darmanin arrived and, and actually spoke to the, to the journalists that were gathered, the narrative was completely different. It was all about the smugglers and how the responsibility for this tragedy was theirs. And I get the impression that there's been an agreement between the two countries to, to push attention, to, to push blame towards the smugglers rather than one another. Because, Laura, there is this question here about how much is this an Anglo-French issue versus something much bigger in terms of flows of migration from Africa into Europe and across the continent. And I think up until now, a lot of the response from France has been focused on that, saying this is not just an English Channel problem, it's something much bigger. But obviously, this tragedy is brought into a sharp light. And I think that the UK government has said for quite some time now, it's offered more help, more resources to France, and has been rebuffed to a certain extent. That's the UK narrative on it. Do you, is there a sense now that you think things might actually change? Because, you know, someone I spoke to, senior in the Home Office, said to me they were very pleased to see Emmanuel Macron speaking about this because they've been trying to capture top level political attention and they hadn't got it so far. From the British perspective, our cabinet ministers are arguing that they have been offering to put more officers on the ground and they're calling for these joint patrols of the channel that's problematic, of course, because it's only really the French police on the French side that can actually do anything. So there's a question as to what the role would be of, of the Brits. Would we be there as observers trying to sort of help and give moral backup or to, you know, just to show that we're taking this issue seriously? And the, the French, as we've seen today, but also I think this is actually an argument that is, is being taken on and listened to by the Brits is that actually this does need to be some sort of joint, concentrated approach from countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, to try and shut down people trafficking operations that are happening all across Europe. Because the point that the British and the French officials have been making today is that actually the people that are getting on these boats aren't necessarily camping in Calais for months 
actually they're arriving on the French coast by road and they're coming from abroad. They're coming from these other European countries. And then they're setting off across the channel within hours of arriving in France because they're tipped off by these traffickers that the water is calm, that the weather is okay, and that their chances of getting over are increased. And I think that point sort of illustrates that this is a sort of a a huge web that's happening of of trafficking. It's, It's not just concentrated on this border. And so actually there is a role for other countries to play. There are also going to be calls now, as we've seen, for perhaps the Brits to have some sort of asylum-seeking process actually based in France. But again, that's controversial because critics argue that would then act as a magnet for other people to arrive and they, they don't necessarily want to encourage more people to arrive in Calais. The French wouldn't want that. But clearly it's not working and clearly there needs to be some kind of wider strategic thinking here. And I think that's why we're seeing all these different governments now being invited by France to have an international meeting to discuss this crisis, which I think we're going to see on Sunday this week. And how does this play into the wider context of Anglo-French relations? Because obviously, following the Orca security deal, things have got into a pretty ropey state. Although I should say, you know, France didn't recall its ambassadors to the UK as it did with Australia and the US over that diplomatic incident there. But it feels as if things have been in a bit of a cold freeze. And that's definitely meant that the UK's efforts to try and resolve this crisis have not had much success so far. Anglo-French relations have been getting worse and worse for several months, partly stemming from the fractious Brexit negotiations. Then there was the AUKUS agreement that you've mentioned. And then there's also been ongoing tensions over the the UK not providing fishing rights to, to French fishermen. But even before the tragedy on Wednesday, diplomats and ministers on both sides had begun to, to tone down their heated exchanges about the issue. And, and, and since Wednesday, there's been a lot of talk about about the sides working together to, to tackle the problem. So I guess there is an opportunity for the situation to improve and for the two governments to find common ground about how they tackle the problem. But I think we have to wait and see how it plays out because there have been several moments over the past few weeks and months where it looked like there was a bit of a detente between the two governments and then tensions just flared up again. You know, in terms of whether things will get better or worse, as they work together to find a solution, which appears to be, from both Macron and Johnson, a headlong push towards greater policing and a crackdown on smugglers. But I'm not really convinced from where I'm standing that that's going to solve the problem. Several organisations working here in Calais have told me the greater the policing, the more dangerous these journeys become because it, it, it doesn't stop them happening. And from the UK perspective on that, Laura, people I spoke to in the Foreign Office today sort of say, look, we do want things to get better. France is obviously a very important diplomatic, security, strategic partner for the UK. But the issue is you've got the French presidential elections and a lot of people feel that the sort of the freeze works quite well for both Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson because it's popular with their respective electorates. And that when we get past May next year, things could start to get a little bit better. Yes, exactly. If you speak to people in the foreign office and diplomats, there is a general acceptance that the French are going to play hardball, that Macron is going to continue to blast Boris Johnson in public because it plays well to a French audience. And 
equally in the UK, the Prime Minister has been pretty brazen in his comments to his French counterpart using kind of fake French and being really quite antagonistic. But it, it serves within the interests of both sides to try and blame the other because the public in respective countries are frustrated and concerned by what they are seeing unfold in the channel. Now, from what, from your perspective, where you are at the moment, Anna, what's the sense of what people of Calais would like to see happen here? Because obviously they are very much on the front line of this and have been for a number of years that the small boats issue became a big, a big problem in about 2018 onwards and has been escalating since then. But, you know, cross-channel migration, Calais has always been on the front line. You've had the Latouke agreement, which people love to talk about. Maybe it'll go, maybe it'll be reformed, which puts the border essentially there. Do people want that scrap? Do they want more money? Do they want more resources? What is it? Well, I think people basically fall into two camps around how to tackle this problem. The first is increasing policing and enforcement to stop the smugglers uh, from taking people on these journeys. This is the law and order approach. Generally, people on the right support this. This is what both Macron and Johnson are pushing for. And I think there are a lot of people here in Calais that would like that. They want more support, they want more financial support sent from the UK to make that happen. The second option is to create a kind of what's called a humanitarian bridge between the UK and the EU to create a a safe and legal way for people to apply for asylum from Europe. This is what NGOs on the ground are calling for. And they say it's the only solution because increased policing doesn't work and it only pushes people to make more and more dangerous journeys. Uh, Part of the reason people are taking these small boat crossings in much greater numbers than they were before is because other routes are much more thoroughly policed. Interestingly, the the second option I talked about is also what the president and the chair of the ports of Calais and Boulogne, uh, a guy called Jean-Marc Puissesseau, is calling for. Um, I spoke to him this morning and and he was absolutely livid about the situation and and about the the lack of humanity shown by um, both the British and French governments. And and he was saying that he believes, and and he's been saying this for a while, but he believes it more than he ever has before, that an international centre should be set up in potentially mainland France, funded by a number of EU governments to help process applications uh, for asylum in a humane way. Finally, Laura, of course, the UK is taking quite a tough line approach on this. And the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, as I said at the beginning, and when she came in in 2019 to the road, she said she was going to solve this. And this week it struck me that's actually a very unusual strategy to take because it's not clear she can solve this. And it's not entirely on the UK and France to do this, that, you know, there's some people in government who are talking about ripping up the Human Rights Act or challenging the UK's membership of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is something Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's former advisor, has been talking about. But it seems that if you go down the sort of route of making Britain an almost pariah state and taking a very tough action internationally, that's going to have much bigger diplomatic repercussions. But we also know that many people are leaning on Boris Johnson to say, look, if you don't grip this, if you don't take a very hard line approach, then you could see a new populist right-wing party. You could see Nigel Farage come back again. And if the right-wing vote here begins to be split on this issue of controlling borders, then politically, it's very difficult. So where do you see the rhetoric going from here? You're right, because in some respects, it's it's not really within the gift of the UK 
to deal with this on its own and to take it offline. But it's it's more about, I think, how it's playing out in the UK media. And Priti Patel is in the role of Home Secretary because she's very popular for her law and order rhetoric and her approach, particularly when it comes to the grassroots of the Conservative Party. But it doesn't look as though she's made a, a massive difference in this position. And that has prompted, as you said, the likes of Nigel Farage to pop their heads up above the parapet this week and say they're considering a return to politics to deal with this. And we know, we know from the whole Brexit debate and the argument that that kind of language actually does play out quite well on the doorstep with a, a number of people in this country. Even after you see extraordinary headlines, as we have done this week, about children dying, making these crossings. I think really, though, for Pretty Patel, it's the Prime Minister and it's number 10 and Downing Street that set the relationship with France. And that relationship is incredibly fraught at the moment. And that limits the Home Secretary to do much when she's working within the parameters of what UK law will allow. But of course, she is the figurehead, she is the face, and she is the one who is getting this anger from backbench Tory MPs. But we know that this is this is the issue that that Tory MPs are hearing from their voters on the doorstep more than anything else. And so I think it really is going to be on the PM to take personal responsibility and to lead on it. Laura and Anna, thank you very much. The CBI conference is usually a dry affair where politicians try to win over business leaders with their pitches on economy and the enterprise. But Boris Johnson took an unusual approach to this year's gathering where he lost his place for an excruciating 30 seconds and invoked a children's cartoon character to make some sort of political point. Forgive me. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to Pads? I've been anybody who's been to Peppa Pig World. Not enough. I was well. It's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is is very much my kind of place. Uh, it, 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 it has uh, a uh, very safe streets, uh, discipline in schools, uh, heavy emphasis on new mass transit systems. I, I notice. Uh, even if they're a bit stereotypical about about Daddy Pig. Well, this bizarre moment, which Johnson actually repeated twice later in that day in other speeches, led to a reporter asking the Prime Minister, are you okay? So is he? Robert Shrimsley, welcome back to the podcast. Let's begin with that Peppa Pig moment there. It's a classic Boris Johnson analogy. And you could hear the titters of laughter within the room, but the wider context seemed to be that it didn't land. What did this tell us about the state of Boris Johnson's prime ministerialship? Well, I think there are two ways of looking at this, Seb, and context is absolutely everything. You know, I think partly one has to bear in mind, this is the CBI, not a body that Boris Johnson takes tremendously seriously and has been, as we know, expletively rude about in the past. And I think there was an element of a speech that just felt a bit dashed off and half cobbled together. It was a poor speech with some poor moments and some jokes that didn't land. But that's not the first time that's ever happened to Boris Johnson. He He can be erratic in his speech. And I think the point, therefore, is, Why did people leap on this now? And the reason is because it comes at the end of a run of unforced errors and misjudgments, and it therefore serves as a useful metaphor for a prime minister losing his grip. It's not that the speech was such a terrible catastrophe in its own right, although as a speech it was pretty grim. It's that 
it captures for people visually the notion of a prime minister who's not quite on top of his game. And that has been the accusation that's been levelled at him over the last month since the Owen Patterson sleaze affair, the misfiring rail announcement in which he managed to turn you know, a £96 billion rail investment in, into an own goal, the row over social care. So there's been a run of things recently which have made him look weak, not on top of his game, and this captured that as a metaphor. Well, Paul Goodman, it's great to have you back on the podcast. I dread to think how many Boris Johnson speeches you've heard and listened to over the years. But I think Robert's got a point. This sort of did encapsulate a general mood when Tory MPs were looking for some stability and grip from the Prime Minister and they saw this speech and then there was even talk that they were losing confidence in him. Why did this particular moment crash, do you think? I sometimes think I'm living in a Nietzschean world of eternal recurrence where things happen again and again and again. And over the years, as you say, I've seen many as we all have, Boris Johnson speeches crash, sometimes deliberately, sometimes accidentally. And I think before talking about the politics of it, it's just worth pausing and asking what one of these classic red wall voters would have thought about it all sitting somewhere in Walsall with the sound off on their TV. And I suspect the answer is not very much. What is happening is that the government, I think for the first time, since Covid began, really, now that the Narnian winter of the coronavirus is, is ending, is getting back into normal times. That means you run into trouble and you seem to lose your bearings for a bit. Interesting question about this is how Boris Johnson will deal with it because he's so unusual and how Conservative MPs will deal with it. And that, I think, is an interesting question. Robert, is the actual issue the Downing Street operation around Boris Johnson, that lots of people are saying that it's underpowered, it's not got enough political direction, and as my colleague Jim Picard and I have written about this week, there's a lot of warring factions in there. The mood is very different from when Dominic Cummings and the Vote Leave gang reigned, but it, there's a lot of Conservative MPs who feel it's not got enough of an ideological Conservative direction, enough political nous to deal with some of the big issues that are facing the government. I don't know. I mean, I have to say, I always cackle when some kind of prime ministerial mishap of all prime ministers, but especially this one, is followed by immediate demands to get a grip or get some grey hairs or better advisers. I mean, what kind of advisers do you need to say, don't louse up this speech, prime minister? This isn't, you know, this is anybody can say that. I think the thing that matters in all of this is this. Look, the greatest danger to Boris Johnson has always been likely to come from his own MPs rather than from the electorate. The danger is not that people um, sitting half watching this speech on their television react very violently against it. His own MPs see a signal of a prime minister who's not going to get them over the next hurdle of the next election. If they start to worry that he is losing it, that the country might lose faith with him, they will remove him long before the country has the chance to do so. So the issue and the danger for Boris Johnson has always been his own parliamentary party. Now, I don't think you should over-exaggerate this point. I think there are problems. And as Paul has rather implied, you have midterm scores coming up. And, and a lot of this is that. I mean, we can all remember, some of us are you know, old enough to remember you know, the Westland affair and all kinds of things that seemed absolutely terrible for the Thatcher government or for other governments. And these things happen. But I think what I would be worried about if I were a Conservative strategist and a, and a Conservative MP is this, which is that for all of his premiership, Boris Johnson has had a major project, a clarifying project, which his party can get behind, which, you know, first of all, Brexit and then the national crisis over the pandemic. And in both cases, they were overarching issues, which for all the problems that came up, for all the missteps, for all the rebellions, 
encouraged and fostered unity, appeared to show leadership in the prime minister and didn't seem to leave him totally at the mercy of events because there was an overarching goal. And I think what you look at now, and I think what will worry Conservative MPs now, is they look at the government and say, well, what big mission that we can all get behind and say, look, whatever the bumps in the road, we know what direction we're driving and we know that it's worth it and we're sticking with the team. And I think that's the issue that would worry me if I was a Conservative strategist in Downing Street. Well, let's look at that mood in Parliament at the moment, because at PMQs last week, the benches were very empty around Boris Johnson, which is always the sign of a leader in trouble. But at this week, it was a far testier atmosphere. And Keir Starmer did use this moment to attack the Prime Minister. But now the Prime Minister's routine is falling flat. His Chancellor is worried that people are getting wise. His backbenchers say it's embarrassing. Your words. Your words. And, and, and senior people in Downing Street tell the BBC it's just not working. Is everything OK, Prime Minister? And Boris Johnson responded to that as you would expect. Well, Mr Speaker, I, I tell you what's not working. It's that line of attack. Uh, because... Well, Paul, what do you make of the general mood of Conservative MPs? I think Robert is right that fundamentally the voters probably don't care. Even if they're tuning into politics, they're probably just going to have a titter at the Peppa Pig joke. But there has been some reports around this week that more letters of no confidence have gone in about Boris Johnson, even if it's a long way from a problematic level. Are people losing faith? Is this getting to a critical point for him? Or is this just the usual chunt you expect two years into a government? The PMQ's recording is quite opposite because an element in all this, a dog that, as it were, isn't barking, or else, if you like, is barking very loudly, is Labour and the polls. I mean, with all these problems mounting up, these huge challenges, post-Brexit, post-Covid, levelling up, Labour just can't sustainably get ahead in the polls. Anyone with um, political memory, which actually doesn't include all Conservative MPs, will remember that quite regularly Blair was behind when he, he got into his stride. Thatcher was very often behind for long periods and they all came through to win. So as long as the sort of strategic situation remains fairly robust as long or until interest rates go up and you really get tremendously big economic problems i don't think conservative mps are going to lose their heads but they're a jittery lot there are a lot of them who are new they didn't have the opportunity as it were to sort of settle in because of covid and haven't gone through the the normal process of getting used to parliament so in the back of my mind i'm not really quite sure what will happen but Basically, you know, if you really stand back from the events of this week and have a little think about it, the fundamentals for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives are not all that bad. Now, Robert, what about Downing Street? Because I've done a piece with my colleague Jim Picard this week about inside the Prime Minister's operation. And a lot of Conservative MPs are saying this is where the issue is, that he doesn't have good enough or experienced enough people around him. And going back to your point, there is not that defining mission. It's almost a year exactly since Dominic Cummings and the Vote Leave gang left Downing Street. And in their place, a lot of advisers linked to Michael Gove have gone in instead. What do you make of that line of attack and what do you make of the Downing Street team? Because the more I delved into this, the people inside the building said to me, well, we all do get on quite well. The atmosphere is good, but it's maybe just a little bit lackluster. There's no driving force. There's no driving mission. And there is not enough maybe ideological, political sense at the top there. It's a bit workmanlike. 
I don't think anybody is calling for the return of Dominic Cummings, but we do know that something was lost when he and the Vote Leave crowd largely left Downing Street. And that was that sense of drive uh, and that sense of forceful purpose, which is tremendously useful for a government. Obviously, it came with sufficiently large negatives that in the end, he had to go. I mean, I think the Downing Street team, there's perfectly decent professional people in there. One can argue about whether they're missing a few political tricks, but then you'd have to ask that about, say, the chief whip and the leader of the House as well. Uh, the, the Downing Street team is OK. The fundamental problem is the prime minister himself. He runs a court, very much like a royal court. He thrives on the chaos. He likes being challenged intellectually, but not challenged. And so all those things together mean that the character of the prime minister sets the tone of the government. I think the one thing that is, in a way, more interesting in all of this is the friction between the Treasury and Downing Street. And I think what is becoming very obvious is the tensions between Team Sunak and Team Johnson, if you will. The the Treasury team for quite a long time has been very, very contemptuous of Johnson's inability to make tough decisions. They're scathing about some of his, you know, grand projects that don't add up. Rishi Sunak's 3% fiscal rule on capital expenditure is partly to so he can restrain Boris Johnson's more exciting schemes like bridges between Scotland and Ireland. But what I think we're going to see is a lot of the tensions, and we see, we saw this over the rail announcement and we saw this over social care, come back to the Treasury restricting his spending. And I think the thing to watch in this is less fallout within Boris Johnson's own team, but increasing friction between the two occupants of Downing Street and their teams. And what do you make of that, Paul? Because there was this quote that went out to the BBC's Laws Coonsberg from a senior Downing Street source that said something's got to change. It's just not working. The cabinet needs to intervene because if they don't, Boris Johnson will just keep on going as he did before and will keep on stumbling. And there's one line of thought that, yes, maybe they do. And they need to bring in, say, a fixer or a deputy prime minister who could navigate things better. The other view is the fact that this is just Boris Johnson. This is how he operates. You're not going to change that. And that's obviously the frustration of the Treasury and people like Rishi Sunak who take a somewhat different view on how you do politics. On Downing Street itself, I think it is odd that Boris Johnson should be doing three speeches in a day. But of course, I agree with Robert. Anyone who's worked with Boris Johnson, and we both have, and I for six years was editing his copy, know that he writes all his stuff himself. That's unusual for prime ministers, and it will create a pile up with speeches and potential carnage, as we saw last week. As for the Treasury, I just want to sort of step back and try and think about this historically. Relations between chancellors and prime ministers, unless the couple in question are George Osborne and David Cameron, are usually difficult at the best of times. But the setup here is very ominous. I can't help thinking of Harold Macmillan, who was a Keynesian by intellectual conviction and lost four chancellors in his uh, premiership, some in very contentious circumstances. Now, Boris Johnson isn't a Keynesian by conviction. He's a kind of boosterist, to use his own words, by instinct. He just loves cutting taxes, borrowing, building bridges and generally spending money. He's already lost one chancellor, let's not forget, Sajid Javid, who went out and now came back in. So looking ahead, I certainly see trouble between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak and between Downing Street and the Treasury. What a neat, methodical a finance-trained person like Rishi Sunak must make of Boris Johnson's chaotic methods close up. Who can possibly tell?
Now, of course, Robert, finally, the thing that could reset all this is having something to fill that gap in terms of what this government does and stands for, because obviously he was elected on the pledge of getting Brexit done. And there's been a lot of talk around the levelling up agenda, and that's to tackle regional inequality. We're expecting a white paper that's going to try and set this out. And that will be a moment before Christmas. You were about this in your column this week. Do you think that could be the moment? Is that something that will give the government a defining mission? And how do you think ministers feel about that? I don't know if it will be the moment, but I think it's the best shot they have. I mean, the fundamental issue, uh, to to use Paul's phrase about stepping up, what is the fundamental problem for this government? The fundamental problem for this government is it doesn't really have an economic growth strategy. It's spending a lot and it wants to cut taxes. If you want to keep doing that, you're going to have to find economic growth. The closest it has to a growth strategy is the levelling up agenda, is the notion that you can boost the national income by making parts of the country that have been underpowered more successful. It's also a politically attractive agenda. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean greater pride in local community. It can bring bring more respect and happiness into communities which felt left behind. So there's a lot to like about the levelling up agenda. There's a lot to like about investment and infrastructure spending, the skills agenda. These are all good things. But what's been missing is some kind of genuinely coherent process with metrics against which you can measure what they're doing, which turns what is essentially a slogan and a series of you know, cash pots which can be bunged at conservative constituencies into a meaningful strategy that everybody can look at and go, yes, I can see there is a plan to take the country in a particular direction and that I quite like this direction. And then, because levelling up has to be a very long-term agenda, then when they go to the next election, say, look, we've, we've made a damn good start, but we're going to need more time to carry this through. That becomes a convincing argument. Now, there's lots of holes in this. There's lots of issues about whether they're prepared to grant the right, more powers to regional mayors. But the point is, I think they have to fundamentally commit to this because it's the closest they have to a project and a strategy. And as things start to get bumpy in the economy next year, this is the thing they can point to and hopefully unite themselves around. So will it do the job? I don't know. But I think it's their best bet. And briefly, Fanny, Paul, do you think this could be the moment that things start to turn back to where they were, or is this just going to pass by? There are ups and downs. There always are midterm and there always will be. I think the moment of decision will come if, or perhaps rather when, interest rates go up, because many voters are simply unused to that and we're going to move into different economic times. I agree that levelling up really is the best shot. I think it's not particularly difficult to understand. Robert's definition was a pretty good one of trying to raise up the level of other regions. Uh, Michael Gove, who's been rather quiet recently, will come out and make the best of it. I, I suspect what will happen as the election gets nearer is the Conservatives will do, when the election comes, what all first-term governments, and this is essentially a first-term government, do. They will say, I've, we've made a start and there's more to do. And Boris Johnson will try to point to these marginal constituencies that the Conservatives won and point to maybe the tractors going in and being able to deliver new rail lines or the start of a new hospital or, or a new school and will say that they've made a start. He's relying on those places being given by the Conservatives what they may have lacked over the last 15 years or so, which is a little bit of love. And he hopes that will get him over the line when the next election comes, whenever that is. Well, Robert and Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. 
If you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love a positive review and nice rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dada and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next week, thanks as always for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.